0: Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking again with Lee Jessam. Lee is a professor of psychology at Rutgers and uh, he's also recently started a a Substack. and he'd written a brief article about how he's being hounded by a bunch of academics and it was a quote about Fiddler on the Roof. So I thought (laughs) maybe Lee could talk about that and then we could talk about what's going on in psychology. Hey Lee, how are you doing? Thanks for coming back on. I'm good.
1: I'm good, Obeyed. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what's going on with you?
1: So so what did you do?
0: How how did you fall foul of uh, 1500 academics?
1: Yeah. So, so um, the, I wrote an article that was critical of uh, the rhetoric commonly used in psychology and academia around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you know, when you advocate for diversity, you know, it kind of sounds benevolent, right? I mean, who, you know, you want to be inclusive of all different kinds of people and you want to have a welcoming environment. And, you know, in terms of understanding the human psyche, you kind of want different perspectives in there. Who could possibly be against such a thing? It's like just so benevolent. Okay, so my article was critical, not of those concepts. In fact, it actually endorsed that view of diversity but i argued that the way diversity equity and inclusion is being implemented in psychology um, and through much of academia is disingenuous um that is it's the, the the a lot of the rhetoric is framed in the way i just framed it but then when it comes to delivering it it's really exclusively focused and this was in response to an article that did exactly this it's almost exclusively focused on, uh, on what I have come to think of as progressive diversity. So in the progressive worldview, uh, there are certain groups that have been um, uh, marginalized or stigmatized or oppressed or excluded in some way. And making the field more inclusive and welcoming and uh, to diverse groups doesn't mean uh, making the field welcome welcoming to diverse groups. It means making it welcoming to those particular groups. Um, and and the full version of diversity absolutely does include making the field welcome to those groups. It's just not restricted to those, uh, those groups. So, I mean, I really just got off a meeting with a guy, a white guy, whose uh, father committed suicide when he was three. I don't know. That kind of sounds like a hard thing in one's life. You know, and you would think you you would want, you know, if if we're making sure to be inclusive to people who maybe life has dealt kind of an unfair hand, he would be, so to speak, included in that kind of, people like him should be also welcomed and included in the field. But that is not what progressive diversity is about. So my article um, used a quote from Fiddler on the Roof to frame this disingenuousness. Um, and in the in Fiddler on the Roof, which is a play about early twentieth century uh, J- uh, Jewish life in the in, in Russia, um, the, the probably the most famous song from the play is the song Tradition, which is about how you know the centuries old Jewish traditions are what kept the communities together in the face of all sorts of uh, uh, you know oppression and stigma and poverty and all that sort of stuff, but as the song goes on, there are periodic things that stress the, co- the, the the cohesiveness of the community. And one is the time he sold him a horse, but delivered a mule. And there's a whole thing in the yeah. song about sort of follow up on that. And I used that quote to capture this disingenuousness in the rhetoric around diversity in psychology and academia. Now you might say, what's the problem with that? Well, what I was accused of doing was explicit, this is a quote, explicitly drawing a parallel between black people and mules. So yeah. once that charge is laid, now I'm a racist. I'm I'm dehumanizing black people. You know I'm I'm drawing on the worst of these like nineteenth century racist tropes, and you know I'm evil incarnate. So that's how fourteen hundred academics came to. They weren't only denouncing me. There was a whole there was a whole coven of supposed racists who committed acts of, of comparable magnitude, um, and we were all denounced by these academics.
0: Were all these academics? In the field of psychology, or were they all over the place?
1: They were mostly psychology. They were disproportionately psychology, but they were all over the place. There were philosophers there, and there were like computer science types there. So
0: my uh, my understanding of psychology comes from taking Psych 101 and Psych 201. So that's there's my limit. yeah you know, there's my limit of it. <laughs> but you know, everything I've seen or read or people I've spoken to, if you go into therapy, it's about helping yourself so that. You know, you can have some tools so you can, it's not that you might not need to go see a therapist anymore, but at least you have some tools where you can deal with some things on your own. But when psychologists are, or, you know, professors of psychology or even clinical psychologists, when they're saying that, oh, you've compared black people to mules, which you didn't. And then this is, they're so weak and they're so, you know, uh, like they're so easily offended or that, that you can damage them so much. I mean, how are they going to be able to help someone if they can't speak freely or if they can't give criticism in therapy? Like, I don't understand that. Like, it just seems counterintuitive to what psychology is supposed to be doing.
1: Well, I mean, I certainly agree with that. Um, I I mean, if if your goal, whether your goal is helping an individual person or you know, doing something for broader social benefit. I mean, Mm -hmm. look, I'm a professor. I would much rather do a good job than a bad job teaching students and mentoring undergraduates and graduate students. Mm -hmm. And if somebody has, uh, uh, you know, good ideas, especially evidence-based ideas for practices that can help that, uh, my ears are going to perk up. Um, You know, just because some study is published saying it doesn't make it true, but I'll certainly listen to it. Uh, and But the only way you can ever know any of that is true, whether it is a, a an individual therapeutic method or intervention or some sort of bigger social intervention to um, improve anything from the quality of teaching, the quality of mentoring to the sort of environment on campus. Um, those claims can only be vetted by robust and vigorous social uh, and, and public discourse. Uh, That means such claims need to be subject to vigorous criticism, uh, including skeptical criticism. And if you close that avenue off, you run a serious risk of of, um, adopting practices that are, you know, appealing bullshit that are either ineffective or dysfunctional. And in fact, um, there is a really an excellent New York Times op-ed uh, that came out within the last day or two by Jesse single um he's sort of a science uh, science mm-hmm. reporter um on the pervasive ineffectiveness of diversity equity and inclusion, um, not just in Academia in Academia and corporate settings that if you look at the, Um, the the now substantial evidence about whether it's diversity trainings or diversity programs um there is almost there's exceedingly limited evidence that they do much of they provide much benefit there is a fair amount of evidence saying they don't do they don't provide any benefit whatsoever and there is a smaller number subset of studies that look at unintended side effects that often show those to produce sort of a net negative. Um, so, so for example, certain types of diversity, equity and inclusion programs are demoralizing to people who are not members of the group that are the targeted beneficiaries. So, you know, if you believe that, this, um, uh, incentives or rewards or benefits are going to uh, primarily or entirely to people not like you in your organization. That's going to be demoralizing, and that is one of the messages some of these programs uh, convey. Th- there's this one other study that also just came out. It's I would describe it as preliminary. I wouldn't want to overstate its its interpretation but it compared universities, big, large universities, with either very large diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies, or very small ones, on students' report of the campus environment. You know, do they feel comfortable there? Are they happy there? You know, how much do they kind of like being there? And this, Preliminary study finds <laughs> that the smaller the DEI bureaucracy, the happier the students.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: now I don't want to argue, it's it's an initial study. Yeah. You know, it's non-experimental. Like, it's comparing different universities. Maybe, you know, it's possible that there were differences between students before the DEI bureaucracy. It's not really... It's possible that it's not a causal effect of the BDI bureaucracy, but it's certainly no evidence that the bureaucracies are doing any good, and it's sort of it at least raises the possibility that they are doing more harm than good with respect to campus environment for students.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there was one out in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one by uh, Musa Garib or Musa something Al- like that.
1: Musa Al Garbi. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if I've seen that, but he does very good stuff in general.
0: But that was at the Harvard business review I believe and it was I think he said he looked at 30 years of diversity trainings um, and you know this is going some of this predates the quote-unquote woke stuff and I think it was 800 organizations and it was the same his results were basically the same thing majority of the time it did absolutely nothing and you know worst case scenario it actually made people more racist or more bigoted and and stuff right right right. yeah Um,
1: yeah I mean, it's it's worse than that because even if it does nothing, even if it actually, even if it has a small benefit, it it's, it, it it requires potentially requires such extensive resources. One, just the costs from these bureaucracies, or the costs of hiring diversity co- consultants for trainings or other kind of interventions, and the human cost. If you know, if you are subjecting to 100, 200, 500, thousand of your employees. To three or four or five hours of these trainings, and the trainings produce little or no benefit. The cost is is just to the organization, whether it's an academic organization or a corporation, not just in money, although yes, in money. In the time, right? That's if it's five hundred people spending four hours over a week or two doing these trainings. That's two thousand person hours to accomplish nothing that they could have been applied to getting their work done.
0: Yeah. Um a question on this, like when you're talking about the studies and stuff and like, you know, I asked you about like, how is that a good way for psychologists? You know, like how can they think like that? But I keep hearing a lot about like the replication crisis. And I mean, that's even going into like the hard sciences and stuff too. Is it a, like a case of the students being trained in faulty, faulty methodology or not recognizing what good methodology is. So that's why they're able to, Latch on to these ideas that are that just look wrong. Like i, I was just wondering if that's like, is it like you know, is it a chicken or egg thing type of thing here? Like you know,
1: well, I, you know, in some sense, everything comes down to methodology and philosophy of science. Everything with respect to figuring out what's mm. true empirically, right? So. It's the philosophy of science is what tells you what methods are appropriate for reaching what kinds of inferences. And so you need the combination of a strong sort of system for making logical inferences fo- followed by application of that methodology to any particular psychological or sociological or so or social problem issue that you apply to so in some that's sort of an I don't know my eggheady ag- academic answer to the is it in some sense everything is methodology right because if the methods are rigorous you know to, to know whether something is true so you know to know whether dei bureaucracies make up for a better university that's like to know whether that's true to know whether microaggression trainings, improve the campus climate or the departmental climate to know that requires high quality methods. To know what a high quality method is requires training in method statistics and the philosophy of science that glues all that together. So yes, in some sense, that is the answer. but you know you are asking what's what's the problem you know is it a chicken or egg problem? In my opinion, a lot of people go into the social social sciences politics first, that they have political agendas and political issues and they think they know the answers and then the you know the, the, the science is then crafted or distorted to advance that particular political agenda so they th- kind of think they know the answer up front. Now in some sense ultimately what makes that a problem are the methodological issues, but the corruption of the methods, begins with the political axe grinding. Now, you could unpack it by having a very strong training in methods and statistics and sort of philosophy of science. But many people don't have that. And so you get, I would argue, what you get a fair amount of is propaganda masquerading as science. And the problem, and, and it's very difficult for a layperson because when I say masquerading as science, you know, there could be experiments, it could be statistics, it's going to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. It kind of looks like science, and unless you have that really kind of strong training, uh, for, it's very hard to unpack it as basically bullshit. And this is one of the things I do on my Substack is, is I'll take articles periodically that have this sort of veneer of scientific credibility. And I'll show, you know, there's no reason to believe any claim in this article. Um, so, but, but that is hard. That's not an easy thing to do.
0: So like when you mentioned the political axe to grind. So, I mean, I, I've been following this stuff for a while now. And you see in, you know, K through 12, you're seeing teachers being interviewed. And it's like, oh, we want our kids to be activists. And I'd be, sp- I'd spoken to Michael Schellenberger about this. Cause he was talking about, you know, studying, to be an environmentalist in that. And it's to me, it seems like kids or students are being taught to be an activist instead of being taught the subjects. Okay, you want to learn environmental sciences, you learn meteorology, learn, you know, actually get expertise in your field and then use that expertise to further your activism. But now they're it seems like they're taking their activism to further their field, which, and they know nothing about it. And it's so, it, it, it seems to me like that. Like, I mean, I could be like, again, I'm you know outside looking in, so I don't know if that's what's going on or if that's part of it anyways. Well,
1: I mean, that, that probably is in the mix and you know, I don't want to overstate it. like if there's, <laughs> if a scientific finding is really well established and, it's around a problem, then it it does become reasonable. I think for a person to, I would agree with you, first develop the expertise that is required to understand the nature of the problem, and then also want to do something about it. Now, you know, environmentalism is is kind of interesting. I mean, the you know the big thing there is global warming. Although it's not only global warming, it's you know preservation of natural areas and 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 you know, kind of related to global warming, but not exactly the same thing. Is the dramatic decline in you know biodiversity? And there's also you know more and more species are are both going extinct and on, on endangered, and you have precipitous population declines. All of that, as far as I know, I mean, look, I'm a psychologist, I'm not an environmentalist, my, but my understanding is kind of you know, a lay person reading that stuff, I think most of that is really well established. So for a person to come along and say they want to do something about that is not unreasonable. But then but to 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 to, to um to become an expert on what to do about that probably requires Bec- developing expertise in psychology, sociology, and public policy. You, you know, you, you can't become an expert on that just by becoming an environmental scientist. Because, yeah, you can document that the world is getting warmer or that, you know, the certain species are in decline, but that tells you literally nothing about the best policy avenues for coping with that. Nothing. And no matter how many PhDs you have in biology and environmental science, you might have some good ideas, but you have no more expertise on public policy than anybody else, unless you actually have expertise on public policy.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can see that, but again, like, you know, if you've done a bachelor's in, in whatever meteorology, then you do a master's in public policy and you can marry the two, but at least you've got a background in what you're talking about. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's because it just seems to me like this is, all self-defeating i mean i'm I'm seeing it now more and more in stem i mean there was the one thing that came out yesterday uh it it was mathematics but spelt with ix at the end and uh, oh it's it's just insane and it's i mean the the woman who put it out she also uh believes that rocks are living and i mean it's just it's off the wall but you know (laughs) Okay, I mean, yeah, I, I, I took math. I, I went up to Cal two. There's a lot of work to be done, and if a teacher's wasting time on this kind of nonsense, like the class is not going to catch up. I mean, when it comes down to this kind of stuff, like the, like the woke nonsense, the my biggest issue with it is you're not dealing with the issue. You're not dealing with the primary issue. So, you know, I think in the United States, it's what something like. of the kids graduate high school can't read and write at grade level. And I think it's, I think it's like in the eighties for mathematics and it's okay. So fix that problem, but (laughs) they're so focused on so much other stuff that you're not, you know, kids still can't read, still kids still can't, you know, do basic mathematics. And it's it's like, okay, well, if you want kids to believe your propaganda, because that's what I'm going to call it. At least teach them to read so they can read it. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it, it's kind of self defeating. I, I look.
1: I, I look. I'm not an expert on K to twelve, so but but I, I completely agree with the sentiment that that what K to twelve should be about is you know de- developing uh, you know a set of core skills. You know, right? So so yeah, I mean, math skills and, and that, like reading comprehension and writing and scientific. skills. There's no reason you can't do that. Mo- most kids can't be. Well, well, there are lots of reasons, but there's no good reason, in my opinion, that most kids can't be exposed to a seriously rigorous curriculum at some point. So, so, and that that is more valuable than turning them all into little political activists. That's completely true. At the you know at the university level, you know you have you know this this infection by political activism. You know it's kind of not completely, but partially replacing sort of rigor and merit. I mean I'm working on a paper now titled a uh, defense of merit in science with a fairly large group 20 25 other collaborators. Um but the reason a defense of merit in science is warranted is because normal um indicators of merit are are being you know sort of corroded and discarded. I mean it's not completely gone but it, 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 you know and being replaced with things like diversity equity and inclusion you know, yeah. And even if you can make a case for DEI, I think there's a non-absurd case to be made. You know, if you're doing something on chemistry or psychology, really, that should be evaluated on the basis of the quality of the science, not the identities of the authors. I, that strikes me as really kind of ridiculous. Um, so. It's even worse than that, because, you know, kind of like this recent denunciation that sort of opened this, you know, this 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 podcast. Um, the political movement to advocate for DEI is having downstream consequences that are corrosive to academic freedom and free inquiry. So, you know, the most recent case, more far more extreme than anything that happened to me, was the professor who got fired for, in an art history class, showing yeah. this medieval masterpiece that, among other things, depicted an image of Muhammad you know and she did it with this warning she told the students she was going to do it she recognized that you know this might be forbidden for some of them she told them that it was optional that you know you could you know mm-hmm. uh, exclude yourself from participating in the class so she did everything right in setting this up it's an art history class for god's sake it is a master it, the, the painting is a masterpiece and she got fired allegedly on grounds that it was islamophobic or making students unsafe or whatever yeah, the hell it was well, yeah. and it was the dei office that powered that powered this and just and justified this so you have this corrosion of academic freedom that is i don't think i don't know whether it's intentional or not but whether it's intentional or not <laughs> it is clearly an effect of this sort of growth of dei type stuff throughout academia. And one solution, this is your K to 12 comment is where I was going with this. In academia, one potential solution, it's not being implemented yet, but one policy solution that I have heard that I think is a good idea would be for for states. I mean, states have a lot of control over their state university systems, Um, to designate a minimum of one of their state campuses to be DEI free and to be entirely based on merit whether it's for admissions or faculty hiring and now you know that leaves plenty of DEI based universities colleges and universities in the state so the people who want it can have it but it provides an alternative to people who want something different and then you know now you have sort of a, should that actually take off um you would then have a natural, something like a natural, uh, a national quasi-experiment: which universities are producing, you know, better professionals, better scholars, and better scientists—the DEI universities or the merit-based ones? Now, and I have to admit, because it's never been done, we don't really know the answer. You know, the the DEI argument is that this produces, you know, a better world. It's hypothetically possible. I would have to admit until the study is done, it is hypothetically possible that those DEI universities will produce better scholars, better doctors, and better lawyers. It's possible, but it would now become a falsifiable hypothesis.
0: Yeah. Okay. But I don't think it will. And I mean, okay. Again, this is K through 12. So you've had certain experiments like this run in some ways, and I'm going to ramble for a bit because I want to just kind of lead into my next thing. So- I keep bringing up the Dalton school because I think it was one of the ones that was the most written about. So, you know, they split their kids up into affinity groups for 45 minutes a week and they told them what was good about their race. And if they were non-white, they were oppressed. If they were white, they were oppressors, blah, 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 blah. The kids started looking up what's good about my race, what's bad about other races, and they all turned into ethno-nationalists for the most part, right? And and this the school is still having racial issues to this day. Now, I'm looking at that and I don't want to get into the gun argument in the States. I mean, that's, that's a whole separate thing, but a lot of the shootings recently, like there's that guy in Buffalo, there was, you know, I'm not talking about the one in, uh, in Monterey yesterday. Cause it was an elderly gentleman. These are, you know, like the ones that they had, like I said, the one in Buffalo and there were a few others around that time. They were, you know, 18 to 20 year old men or boys or whatever you would call them. And, this stuff is being in schools, like in New York state, it's been in schools since like 2000, I think in high school since about 2013. So my whole thing is, okay, you're creating maladjusted kids. You're creating kids who are, you know, I just said it's, you know, it's a school to extremist pipeline. Like they can go to Antifa, they can go to the Proud Boys, they can go to whatever, right? Like I know you studied some of the, the online uh, extremism, but so these kids aren't well-adjusted. And then you give them the access to the guns and they're seeing everything through that lens. And I'm actually kind of surprised there's not more mass shootings, (laughs) or maybe some of these kids are taken to the point, instead of going mass shooting, they're going to, you know, kill themselves. So you might have, you know, okay, there's a surge in suicide attempts and whatever, like, you know, and it keeps coming down to, oh, it's just white supremacy or it's this, or it's that. And it's just, you're not looking at the way the kids are being trained. And I mean, you know, like I said, I'm I'm doing my my little two bit psychologist uh, impression here, but you know that that's the way I see it. I I think
1: there is growing evidence that this sort of worldview and a lot of these programs and how they're implemented actually does ratchet up ethnic and inter-ethnic and intergroup tension. I think that's probably true. Um, I think anything is possible. I, I you know, there's been this low grade progression of these sort of mass shootings for for a long time. I think even I would hesitate to make a direct linkage between those programs and these shooters. I, 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 you know, I think that's a, I. I'm hesitating. I mean, it's not ridiculous, my. But I want to believe that that's a stretch. Like that's as far. I that I want to believe that but, it's true. Even I don't want to believe those programs are e are contributing to mass shootings. I I don't want to believe that. I don't. I I can't say I know it's not true, but I yeah. don't want to believe it's true.
0: I mean, like okay. Again, like I said, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that. that you know, I'm not being definitive here or anything. I'm just looking at it. I'm like you've done this over and over again in schools and you're seeing how the kids are reacting and how yeah. they're, and then to some point or other, you're going to get, let's say before there was 1% who was going to turn some sort of extremist, maybe now it's only 3%, but you know, number of yeah. students in the United States, that that couple of percentage points gives you more people. And then again, like I said, we can get into the gun debate, but that's a whole other, Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, but it, it's, it's, I, again, like I'm not saying it's the only contributing factor. I'm just saying that. That could be something that's leading to, you know, kids not being stable. Um, it, it's just, I mean, you talk about the inter, interracial conflicts. One of the things I see with this is, I mean, it is it is doing that. It's, okay, well, Asians have white privilege, you know, or, you know, I, I talked to you about this. Like I said, oh, pretty soon you're going to see, you know only Jews of color can face anti-Semitism, And I'm <laughs> I am seeing I things like that. And I told you that a couple of years ago. I, I, and, you did. And I mean, it's <laughs> so it's, it is like, it is creating that in group, out group thing. I, I keep, you know, thinking back yeah. to those studies where they took, you know, students and said, okay, you guys like chocolate and you guys like vanilla, you know, we're exactly. talking about ice cream flavors. And then you, with something as innocuous as that is, you got in group and out group, right. you know, struggles when you put race into the mixture where you're saying, yeah. you know, uh, what did I see? I see yellow privilege, uh, keep bringing up this conference. There's a conference in, in Toronto a couple of years back. One of the people who let it runs is the head of one of the school boards in Ontario. And it was Brown, Brown complicity and white supremacy. You know, Mm. it just, it's all these Mm. things like you're pitting people against each other based on something very fundamental. And it just, it's gonna, I can't see how it won't cause conflict
1: well i mean it's pretty clear that it does cause conflict i mean i think that's really pretty clear at this point you know what what the the, the defenders would probably claim something like you know there's a long history of white backlash to any sort of program to improve the quality of life in, in in the United States, I don't know other countries as well um, uh, for Black people, and that would not be wrong. I, you know, there is this history of you know of white backlash or white lash to like anything. I you know uh, uh, in this in Jesse Singles article about DEI programs, he points out correctly um, that I don't know in the by, in the early early mid sixties an overwhelming uh, majority of Americans uh, had a negative view of Martin Luther King. S- so there is this history of resentment towards anything designed to improve life for all sorts of marginalized groups. Um, and they would argue that that's what's going on with the DEI programs and the... the, the um, um, sort of ethnic studies and all that kind of stuff. But I think they're wrong. I think they're, you know, they, they, it's, they're not completely wrong. There may be an element of that as well. Uh, but if the idea is that the only reason conflicts are being ratcheted up is because people resent improving conditions for people from marginalized groups, I think they're wrong. I think they are oblivious to the um, the us versus them mentality Um, And some of the really sort of virulently um, hostile language and rhetoric that is emerging from advocates of that stuff. So um, there's just article after article in the peer-reviewed journals on, you know, whether it's toxic masculinity or parasitic whiteness. You know, these are not, uh, this is not rhetoric designed to improve anyone's quality of life. It is just... Degrading demonization rhetoric. So, duh, that that creates conflict.
0: I mean, okay, for like a lot of this stuff, I okay, like, I have it in my government. Like right now, the Canadian government is teaching. Okay, so in their in the Ministry of Immigration, they have definitions for like things like white privilege, and they said that regardless of the race or the color of the skin. If you hold, if you hold ideas that uphold white supremacy, you have white privilege. Now we're teaching our foreign service and our diplomats, you know, that stupid thing from the Smithsonian, like, you know, love of the written word and blah, 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 like all that crap. That's white. Canadians are teaching the Canadian government's teaching that to our foreign service and our diplomats. So if the Canadian government thinks those kinds of things are upholding white supremacy and the immigration department says, if you have ideas that uphold white supremacy, you have white privilege now you know i come from india you know like whatever let's be stereotypical you know math and you know computer science all that stuff i mean like all these things are based on Work reason
1: hard, yeah. show up on time for your job yeah exactly you know, it's the it, height of white privilege yeah so yeah.
0: so indians then in canada are upholding white you know, upholding right. white supremacy and it's just it, again it's it, it's it's like a divide and conquer but you know i think nicole hannah jones the way she put it when biden said about that if you don't vote for me you ain't black she said okay it's it's not just being racially black it's being politically black so you're right you're then dividing up all these small races and i i I find that you know the anti-semitism thing like it's 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 still number one hate crime in canada i believe it's the number one in the united states as well
1: yeah yep
0: but You know, a few years back, it was kind of like, okay, guess what? No longer a protected class because Jews have white privilege. Jews are white, especially European Jews. And so no longer considered privilege. And I mean, I I, I don't know if you read Nicole Levitt's article uh, or if you heard what had happened to her. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. Yeah, She and I are kind of in touch. yeah. Yeah.
0: And I mean, you know, she was basically told that, sorry, don't bring that up because you have white privilege. Right, 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 right. And she's like, but I'm Jewish, and you know, this is affecting me. Or or I don't know if you read uh, yeah. David Bernstein's new book, uh, Woke Antisemitism. Yeah.
1: I have it. I've read part of it. I mean, he's been on a tear, but in part, it was a reaction to his experience of stuff very much like what you just described to yeah. Nicole Levitt.
0: So, I mean, oh, yeah. my government, for Christ's sakes, we, they hired a guy who, okay, he became a naturalized Canadian citizen. He keeps calling Canada a colonialist country, blah, blah, blah. You know, like all the, the woke nonsense, right? He's now living in Lebanon, I believe. He got hired by the Canadian government. He was paid $150,000 to teach our national broadcaster anti-racism. And the guy was a raging anti-Semite. I mean. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I mean, they're yeah. saying, oh, well, you know, we we vetted him. Like if you vetted him, what and you didn't see that. Either you agreed with it or your vetting's lousy. But yeah, it's right. it's it's like the the same DEI that he's pushing, you brought into our government, and you know, they're not looking at that at the bad effects of it or why it's it just like yeah. It just seems like they want to just turn off their thought processes, just say, let's let's, you know, this sounds good. We need to do something, we're gonna do it. It's just doing something for the sake of doing it. It's, I mean, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: yes. I mean, yes. Uh, yes. It's uh, it's propagandistic. It's Orwellian, you know, and, and it is, I mean, this is one of the reasons I was interested in becoming a social scientist many decades ago was the potential to be able to answer questions like this. With actual hard scientific data, social scientific data. You know, does the DEI program work? Does you know such and such an intervention have such and such a, an effect? What I naively at the time, I had no idea about the extent to which political axe grinding could just could distort scientific claims. I mean, I just, you know, when when I was whatever, 24, 25, 27, <laughs> learning how to do this kind of thing, it just was not on my radar, the extent to which that was possible. And it's because, you know, part of that is, for many things, people don't think they need data. No. So, I mean, that was sort of the point of singles op-ed was that, you know, these programs are being pushed by people who just believe in them and who make persuasive arguments and lead other people to believe in them. And, and you know, it's rare that anyone comes along and tries to evaluate whether they have any effectiveness. It's not that rare because there's now enough studies, but over over enough time, there are enough studies to begin to do that. But, but, but even though there are studies able to do it, most people when discussing this sort of thing, in, including people who are psychologists, who should know better, don't look at the data. They're, like, persuaded by, uh, you know, the, the benevolence of the argument or something like that.
0: Okay, talking about data and stuff, because I know you did a lot of work on implicit bias, and you were, like, debunking it quite a bit. And a lot of this stuff is based on implicit bias. So, I mean, like, its foundation is wrong. So how are you getting, you know... And if you can't question its results, I mean that's another thing I hear. Like, oh, well, we've got this data. It's like, oh, well, the data is racist itself. The methodology you used was racist. It's still another one. But if you want to go into like the, the implicit bias and how that works with this, that would be kind of interesting to hear.
1: Yeah. Well, so I mean, I just gave a partial a, a talk that included that. The the, the impl- there's implicit bias of science, and then there's implicit bias bias as intervention and political rhetoric. So, and they're connected, but they're not the same thing. I mean, I would say that the scientific work on implicit bias has been primarily, it has been most effective at influencing the the political rhetoric around these issues. Whereas establishing anything that's actually scientifically true, it's been far weaker at. So there's been a great, okay, let's, so, just for your listeners, I don't know how much people know about implicit bias. Implicit bias, it, there's no consensual definition in psychology as to what implicit bias is. If you, look, if you track down 10 or 15 articles, you'll probably find eight or nine defi- different definitions and seven or eight articles that don't even bother to tell you what they mean by the term. But shorthand, it's something like unconscious racism or automatic racism or knee-jerk racism. That's kind of what people seem to think it means. Um, but there's been a great walking back over the last 10, 15 years, or so of almost every claim made about implicit bias. So the workhorse measure for claims about implicit bias is the implicit association test, without going into lots of technical detail. The implicit bias, uh the, the implicit association test provides no information about anything, any regular walking around person would recognize as bias. What it uh, what it tests is how quickly people respond to certain categories. Now, you know, speed of response to a category is not anything like racial bias or gender bias or any other kind of bias you can imagine. It's just speed of responding to categories. Now, you know, whether... So, so one of... This is... Because it's because those responses are very fast, the presumption of the originators of the test was that this was unconscious, that people didn't, you know, it, it all happened so fast, they have to make these judgments um, so fast that it couldn't possibly be conscious. Which I, you know, this is one of the silliest arguments I have ever heard, it, it you know, or the silliest presumptions, it's almost never articulated in exactly that those terms. But as you know. I'm an avid tennis player. I'm not as good as I used to be. You know, I'm 67, I've slowed down a little bit. But when you play tennis, you're not playing unconsciously. You're trying to win the point, right? Which means, you know, if your opponent hits a good shot, you're trying to keep it in the court and not make an error. And you're trying to hit good shots so that they miss the ball, right? Now, sometimes in tennis, you come to the net. You know, and you volley. Even at my amateur level, there were guys who could rip the ball 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. If you're at the net, that means you have, I don't know, like a third of a second to to take your racket, move it, identify the trajectory of the ball, move your legs to get there, and then get this, you know, kind of small racket head on the ball. Like a third of a second. And yet... At my level, most of us are pretty good at doing that, actually. Now, if you don't play tennis, it's actually very difficult to do. But if you do it a lot, it's actually, you know, it's difficult, but it's not that difficult. So none of that is unconscious. You know, it's like, yeah, there's the ball. I'm not like sitting there performing calculations. Oh, my, my, my opponent uh, hit the ball at a 23-degree angle. He hit it at approximately 84 miles an hour. Therefore, I have to take one and a half. No, of course no one is doing that. It all happens instantaneously, but it's not unconscious. So in the same way, it turns out that if you explain to people what the IAT is and how it works, and you ask them to predict their scores, they're very good at predicting their scores. So there's, there's nothing unconscious about implicit bias, despite the rhetoric around it. On top of that, it's predictive validity, you know how much it predicts discrimination is controversial. There are some large scale studies finding it does it predicts minimally. There's some finding that it predicts certain things better than other things. That's an unresolved issue. But you might, some people would claim, and I'd be one of them, that, you know, there have been tw- 25 to 30 years worth of work on on implicit racism on, and, and implicit bias. And if after 25 years we haven't resolved how well, it, how, how strong its predictive validity it is, Houston we kind of have a problem with the construct and measurement of implicit bias. Yeah, but, and then it just goes on from there. It just goes on from there. So,
0: But didn't also, uh, what's her name, uh, Nazneen? Banaji or something like that? Maz, Mazarin Benaji Yeah. I mean, like she had the IAT thing at Harvard, but I thought she came out a little while ago saying, you know what, you're using this wrong. You're not doing what I said with it. I thought she well, said that. I could be wrong about that.
1: Yes. No, well, that's true. They, they, Banaji and Greenwald, who are like the two sort of founders and foremost proponents of it, um, uh, came out very clearly. This is a while ago now, five, six, seven years ago saying that people shouldn't use the IAT to diagnose individual racism. So that there's too much unreliability in the method and too much unknown about it that, for example, corporations, when, I don't know, doing implicit bias trainings with their employees or deciding who to hire, they shouldn't use it as a diagnostic tool to figure out, well, we shouldn't hire this person because that person's a racist because that would be an inappropriate use of it. It's, it's so the, the measurement is so crude and unreliable that no one should reach that kind of conclusion. So yeah, they did walk that back.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, I was just curious about that. Um, Now academia as a whole, no, I mean, I've, I've been harping about this and, Ever since I came back from overseas, the one thing I was harping about was overcorrections. I'm like, you are going to get overcorrections. And now I keep thinking back to like Hitchens always talked about a man for all seasons. And he talked about that one scene where Roper said, you know, I'd burn down all the laws in England to catch the devil. And Thomas Moore out like, what are you going to do? And I'm seeing all these overcorrections happening. And it's like, okay, but you've gutted your institutions that provide you sense making, you've gutted your defenses. Now you're having these overcorrections. I mean, I saw Kimberly Crenshaw the other day freaking out because of civil rights. I'm like, your whole thesis was to get rid of civil rights and have an identity based politics. Now you're crying about it. Like, I mean, I I don't like some of the, some of these things that are going on, but I'm just like, what did you expect was going to happen? And now, you know, the ACLU is a shadow of what it used to be. I mean, a couple of years ago when the vaccine first came out for COVID, the CDC said, oh, let's give it out by race. And, and then two days later they pulled it back. And everyone was like, oh, see, it's okay. They pulled it back. But now you've got medical schools asking students to take diversity pledges before they get into medical school. So it's, it's to me, it's that like, like academia. I don't know if it's, you know, and I don't want to shit on academics or here or anything, but I don't know. Is it, is it because for the most part, they're bookish and they don't want to fight that they've let this stuff go like you know what's coming in through physics and stuff like that that's coming through the DEI department so they not want to say well they have a PhD in in social studies or you know anthropology or race studies or whatever so they have that expertise so we have to listen to them on that is it like or is it just oh I don't want to put up a fight like or is it a mixture of a lot of things I don't know
1: yeah, it's kind of a mixture of a lot of things. I mean, I think the things you just described are in the mix. You know, m- most like non-radical, non-activist academics really just would rather be left alone to do the work. That's what they want. If you're a physicist, you want to do physics. You know, if you're, you're a, ch- a chemistry professor, that's what you want to do. You want to do chemistry. Um, so, I think there's a lot of people who, you know one they just they just want to do their work and don't want to get involved in this stuff but but if they, to the extent that they pay attention at all it's not hard to see people getting you know punished in one way or another either you know losing positions or being publicly humiliated or whatever and it's like i better keep my head down because i just want to do my work i just don't want to get involved so you have that component but one of my uh, former students who completed his Ph.D. about four months ago um, for his dissertation did two large surveys of one of of, of professors um, in the U.S. across the disciplines and one of graduate students. Both had sample sizes upwards of 2,000, like uh, 1,700, 1,800. Um, and... One of his questions was that he just asked them to self to place to, to sort of self-identify their sort of political views, their political ideologies. And among the faculty, 40% self-identified as radicals, activists, Marxists, or socialists. That number was almost 60% among graduate students. Jeez. So these are very, very high numbers of people on the far left. On the, I mean, and we're not talking Democrats. I mean, they might vote for Democrats, mm-hmm. but we're not talking conventional de- Democrats or even liberal Democrats. These people are on the far, far left of the political spectrum. And so I think there's a lot of full-throated embrace of all of this. There's a lot of true believers, like a lot of true believers in academia.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the sciences and stuff. Uh, there was a case in Montreal recently. I think it was last year. He was a professor of chemistry, and he put in a request for a grant. And when he said he was going to be hiring people based on merit, because he wasn't going to be hiring on a diversity thing, he didn't get his grant. I mean, and you know, and Pat's South Asian. Pat's from India, and like you know, so they're like, oh well you know you're, you're advancing white supremacy it's just like you know and he was the same thing I, i'm doing i you know he's a professor of chemistry they were doing a research project he wants chemists he wants people who know what they're doing in chemistry yeah, right. and i don't know what branch of chemistry it was but you know he, yeah, yeah. which you know to me that makes sense like if i'm if I'm running that, that I want people who know what they're doing. Yes, you might want some administrative types or whatever to help you, you know, like you said, like help get grant funding or you know, do presentations or whatever, but you need chemists. And so to me, it's just like, okay, we're again, we're gutting oh, our institutions. Okay. Yeah.
1: Kendi we, has won. In academia, Kendi has won. Uh, yeah, You're please. either a racist or an anti-racist. So unless you are actively fighting racism, say by hiring people on your grant Mm -hmm. for diversity related criteria, then you're a racist. And of course we can't give grants to racists now. Can we?
0: Okay. I mean, again, this goes back to like, how are I know like the, the the skewing of, you know, who's Democrat, who's left, who's right. But still, how are, you know, this is Jonathan Rauch's you know, humanitarian threat to liberal science. It's, you know, smart people are allowing this to go through because, well, yes, we want to fight racism. Yes, racism is bad. I mean, I agree with all those things, but at the same point, like you're, you're supposedly intelligent people. Like, can't you look at? Well, this is not going to fix the problem. And it, like, it, it, I, 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 I was talking to Greg Lukianoff recently, and I said, you know, I don't care if a university has a chair in alchemy. If they want to put up a chair in alchemy, go ahead. But that chair in alchemy cannot then dictate to the chemistry department, how to do science. And the same thing should be with, yeah. you know, like all these courses where you have like all these people going back into the administration, all these people going back as like DEI officers, whatever, you can't have these nonsense, you know, fields setting, setting policy for the university. And the, I, I, like, I don't see how, I, 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 I'm still baffled by how that happened. So am I.
1: I mean, that's really the short answer. It's like many of these fields are non-empirical. Um, somehow this sort of postmodern idea that what matters is the narrative, that's been victorious also within academia, which is why you know no one needs evidence that a DEI bureaucracy or a, or a microaggression training actually is effective. It's, there's a good narrative. It, there's an anti-racist narrative surrounding it and you're either a racist or an anti-racist and there's a you know and this is a compelling story about how this is anti-racist so we're all good let's all just dive in I yeah. th- I that's what it looks like
0: yeah I mean okay and, and I'm like just me beating dead horse but it's it, this <laughs> th- what really bugs me about this is okay not a Trump supporter never was uh when he ran against Hillary I said okay if i was in the states i'd vote down ticket when he ran against biden i said the same thing i said the best thing you can do is vote down ticket not one of those two idiots deserves my vote that was that was my take on it but a lot of the people who said oh you know vote for biden the the woke stuff will stop it's trump is just aggravating it like did they just not realize how much was taken over because i mean some of those people are now saying okay we got to start up new institutions But you said if we voted for Biden, we could save those institutions. So either you didn't know what you're talking about, and now you're admitting defeat. But it's it's like I'm like, I still keep going back. Like you wasted four years under Trump. I think academia was lost by 2016. I think you know journalism was lost by 2016. But you might have been able to start shoring up some of your other institutions. But again, like Trump was an insane moron, and you know I can see why people want to focus on him. But at the same point, a lot of these people also started off, oh well, you know, Trump got elected because of people were pissed off at what was going on to the left. So instead of fixing their side, they fixated on the orange menace. And I see them doing the same thing now with you know, oh well, we won in the midterms, or we you know we did well in the midterms. So let's focus on how DeSantis is worse than Trump and blah blah blah. I'm like. Why don't you fix your side? Why don't you make your side more electable? Like, you know.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's good evidence for all of that. Um, And uh, actually, Andrew Sullivan had a very nice piece after the election where he pointed out that what you had in the elections are widespread rejections of extremism. So, you know, most of um, the Trump candidates, the Trump supporting candidates, Um, In the national elections, you know, the senator and congressional elections, most of them lost. But what Sullivan pointed out correctly was that in many of the more local elections where, uh, say, school board members were up for a re-election after implementing critical race theory-inspired type policies, you know, dividing Mm -hmm. students by race and confessions of white privilege and all that sort of stuff— they, all, they almost all lost also, because people hate that shit. So so what you had in the electorate is this widespread rejection of extremism on the left and the right. Okay, so on top of that, Thomas Edsel, who's a New York Times writer, um, has this very nice essay. I don't remember whether it was in the Times or somewhere else. Showing, you know, there are different Democratic uh, um, congressional caucuses or groups designed to elect Democrats. And the far left ones have had extremely limited success in getting people elected. There's a more sort of center left group that has a tremendous record of getting Democrats elected. So, you know, when I say tremendous, it's like the far left groups have elected, you know, single digits of numbers of people going back like six or eight years. The, The center left group I don't remember the numbers. It's something like what they've won 35, 40 elections, you know, in contested districts in, you know, in the same period in the last six or eight years. So there's just abundant evidence that people reject extremism. And if you want to win elections, you know, you want to tack towards the center. That's, you know, I mean, Democrats are going to be left of center and Republicans are going to be right of center. But you, you know, you if you want to win, you want you're generally going to want to avoid the extremes. Okay. So I think that's completely right. Uh, you know, I, I I think in it's Anne Wilson, who is a Canadian uh, social psychologist, has a really excellent paper, which I think her collaborator and graduate student wrote this up for The Atlantic, which showed that or I forget whether it showed it exactly or sort of was indirectly consistent with this. What you have on both the left and the right are people on the extreme kind of dominating the public square, the discourse. And this intimidates people you know who are more towards the center, even on their own side, from saying anything, because you risk being denounced and you know humiliated and ostracized by the extreme ideologues who are well organized and very loud on your own side. And so, what you get are, is silence or much more silence among people around the middle. And so, the public square is basically ceded to extremists on the right and extremists on the left, and that becomes the public discourse
0: yeah i mean i see that i mean that's that's pretty much part of the course for anything but it's i wish more of that chunk in the center would start speaking up um i don't want to keep you too much longer but where do you see psychology going and where do you see the academy going like do you see more things like the university of austin opening up or do you see like a more gradual decline Like,
1: yeah well so uh, i have a couple of blogs where uh, around the theme of it's going to get worse before. Or it gets worse. <laughs> so, so, uh yeah, I see the trajectory is, you know, I mean, things do have a way of eventually changing, but in within academia and I think the society outside academia, I think the m- most extreme and intolerant versions, the most illiberal versions of wokeism have receded somewhat. So, for example, the New York Times, you know, Hired, within the last two years, hired John McWhorter as a regular writer. Like, uh, you know, Mm McWhorter is definitely sort of center left and anti-Woke. They've also had a series of op-eds that are sort of ringing endorsements of free speech, which you know, they couldn't have had that three years ago. They're, they're, edit- they're, you know, the editors would have been denounced as causing an unsafe environment or something like that, which is what happened when, you know, the guy had Tom Cotton do his thing on, you know, yeah. the National Bar and so. Um, so it's not hypothetical. That actually, that stuff actually happened. So that's just the New York Times. I think there's other um, reasons to believe that there's, you know, the most extreme, versions of sort of illiberal wokeism have receded in the wider society. But in academia, the trajectory is for it to become more and more extreme. So they say Nate Honeycutt's dissertation, the one that found 40% of academics identify as radical socialist activists and Marxists, those numbers are much higher than they were 15, 20 years ago. And so that trajectory, the sort of radicalization of academia is proceeding apace. I, I don't see that I mean, it, it may turn around. I mean, at some point there'll be a limit. Right. I mean, at some point it's 100 percent, you know, maybe, you know, maybe 20 years from now, everybody will be a Marxist or a new or, or a nouveau Marxist with a sort of evolution of Marxism itself. Like at some point there's a limit. But for now, I see that radicalization proceeding apace. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's tons of grassroots support. For the worst forms of the kind of things you and I have just talked about, you know, for DEI, whether it does good things or bad things, you know, for all these trainings, for um, for denouncing and ostracizing people who are not with the orthodoxy. Um, so I, I just don't, you know, I don't see that getting better anytime soon. I, I it's probably going to get worse. But, and at, you know, will it turn around at some point? Maybe. Uh, for what it's worth, I am actually talking at the University of Austin. Um, in June, they have a uh, I have like a two week special session on forbidden courses, forbidden topics. And uh, I'll probably be talking about the radicalization of academia uh, when I when I go there. So I think that has some hope of being a good thing. Um, a bunch of us within academia have formed the Society for Open Inquiry in the Behavioral Sciences, which is meant to be a refuge from all this nonsense. Um uh, but we're new and it remains to be seen whether we get any traction or actually accomplish anything of note. We're too new to have an answer to that. Um, so, you know, so that you know, that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I for, for me again, I'm just worried about, okay, just take the whole COVID thing, right? Um, the distrust in science and the distrust, and I'm not talking about, you know, Fauci saying I am the science. I'm actually talking about like the scientific method. <laughs> and the distrust in experts. And I I don't blame people for this. Like, I I honestly don't. It it was self-inflicted damage. And, you know, when you have doctors telling you not to go to church, but at the same time saying you can go to a BLM protest (laughs) when you have the city of New York and the state of California telling contact tracers not to ask people if they went to BLM protests, like this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I can see why you don't trust these people. And, you know, you need a strong academy. You need a strong set of sciences. You need, a, a, you know, you need experts, people can trust. And it's just, I, I don't like blaming everything on the internet. I don't like blaming everything on social media, but it's, you know, yeah, no, 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 no shit. Someone's going to some asshole on YouTube because, you know, like I said, you've got Fauci on 60 Minutes saying, Well, I'm not going to tell people not to go to protest, but he's telling people not to go to Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it's there's a huge disconnect there. And it's if the Academy fails, you know, I look at like organizations like Ideas Beyond Borders that are spreading like Enlightenment uh, books to the Middle East. I look at, you know, people protests coming up here and there and people want their freedom. I'm like, okay, but if, if the Anglosphere, if the West gives this up, there's nothing left. There's there's nowhere where there's, you know, I, again, I'll go back to, uh, what was it? David Deutsch's book, Beginning of Infinity. Is there going to be, you know, a thousand years down the road, another Deutsch writing about us as another pocket of enlightenment that, you know, that fizzled out because it couldn't, it couldn't manage to, you know, keep the barbarians at bay. Like it's, it, it like, that's, I, I look at it like that. I'm just like, I'm not, not terribly optimistic. Let's put it that way.
1: The the history of both free speech, which I see as the foundation for all of this, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have good science without free speech because if people can't critically evaluate the science, then the science is going to suffer. So I see free speech as the foundation for it. Um, uh, but the and but the historical ebb and flow of support for free speech and sort of the Free exchange of ideas, both historically and cross culturally, has really ebbed and flowed. Um, you know, so there was the, you know, there was the great flowering of knowledge and the quest for knowledge under the Greeks, but then, you know, that society kind of collapsed. There was probably not as great a flowering under the Romans. After the Roman Empire collapsed, sort of the next great wave was actually under the Arab, Arabic empires, um, uh, which, you know, even though the rule, you know, the sort of monarchic like rule was kind of authoritarian. Well, some of those authoritarian rulers were kind of like, well, long as you don't challenge me, you can say and do pretty much anything you want. And so you actually did have the sort of great flowering of the sort of search for knowledge and and, and exchange of ideas. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. Then you had the European Enlightenment and, you know, we're... or I don't. Who the hell knows, Obeid? Yeah. I have no idea. We could be at the end of the Enlightenment and heading into five hundred years of darkness. And you know, maybe the next great flowering is going to come out of Sierra Leone. I, yeah. I, you know, I have no idea.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's like I said, it's just things like that. But you know, just one quick correction: like when you mentioned, like the the, the Islamic, like the Golden Age of Islam. Technically, it wasn't the Arabs, though it was North Africans and the only Arabs that were really involved were from Iraq and, uh, you know, then Persians in Iran. So it was more of a North African enlightenment of the Islamic caliphate. Like it didn't come from the Arabs. I mean, I know like yeah. the Arabs because it's Islam the Arabs like to take claim of it, but it was, like I said, it was more North Africans than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. So if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh, put your, you know, them where your Substack is i'll put all the links in the in the description
1: oh sure sure you want me to email that to you or You want me to say so now oh, i
0: just let people know now because i'll include it as oh well. yeah
1: okay well i i i blog regularly at unsafe science on Substack. stack google search for unsafe science it should come right up and i'm active at uh on uh, uh on twitter mostly on science and academia type stuff at uh, Psychra at you know twitter at psych rabble
0: okay so, well, thanks a lot again, Lee. It was good talking to you. And uh, you know, hopefully, you can do it again sometime in the future.
1: Uh, um, you know, there's enough crap going on <laughs> over oh, that I am sure our paths will cross again. So, thank you.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone, for listening.